Well, welcome to Maranatha. I'm Pastor Tony. I work with the youth here, and uh, we are so glad that you're with us, whether you, this is your, like, 4,000th time here, or if it's your first time at Maranatha, we're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We welcome those who join us uh, online as well, watching the service, and uh, we're just glad to be together. If you are new, or if you have prayer requests, or if you want to get plugged in, in any, uh, to any of the ministries or opportunities to grow in your faith, to fill out one of the little yellow sheets. If there's not one in the pew, there are some by the offering box on the way, in between the doors on the way out. We have our baptism service. Another reminder about that, that is coming up in two weeks, two weeks from today, I believe, is there one week from today? What's the day today? One week from today. I don't know what day it is. August 13th, so that would be one week from today at 12.15, basically after service, we'll head out to uh, Grant Park Pavilion, that's at Silver Lake, so just to be clear, last year uh, we were out at Arrowhead, we're not at Arrowhead, so don't go out there, you'll be baptizing yourself, Um, we're going to Silver Lake towards Cumberland, and uh, we'd love to have you join us for that, Uh, it's usually we have 150 plus people from the church to gather, just to have a picnic together, to enjoy Hopefully some nice weather, uh, bring your lawn chairs, uh, bring your friends, and then in the bulletin there's more details about bringing a side dish as well, if you're able to do that. Um, Maranath will be providing the main part of the meal for that. But if you are interested in getting baptized and you've not already spoken with one of the pastors, do that please. Um, ASAP, we'd love to have uh, more sign up if there are more interested, but we have a wonderful group that is uh, ready to get baptized and to uh, profess their faith through that that means. So join us if you are able next Sunday. Uh, we have the men's camping trip coming up August, or October, sorry, October 13th through 15th. Or no, that's August. I'm looking, I'm mixing, I'm mixing everything up today. Read your bulletins because the person up front <laughs> may not say the right thing. Men's camping weekend is August 11th and 12th. Yeah, that's... Uh, coming up soon. When is that? This Friday. At Barry's place, is that correct, right? So we're going to be canoeing and uh, bring your fishing poles, kayaks, canoes. That's from 5.30 p.m. on the 11th until 3 p.m. on Saturday the 12th. And uh, bring your, your boys with, so men, bring your boys with. You can sign up on the church website or at the welcome desk out there. I'm going to try the third one here, see if we can get the date correct. Women's retreat, save the date, October 13 through 15. Is that correct, women? All right. Yes. I got one. One out of three, you know. So save the date for that, but then um, sooner than that, more, coming more quickly, is the picnic, which is August 24th. And that's for women of all ages. Uh, August 24th from 3 to 7 p.m. That's the women and, and children's picnic at Moon Lake Park Pavilion, and again, you can sign up at the welcome desk for that, so they know how many to expect. Um, Pastor Cody and family are uh, visiting Amber's uncle, I believe it is, who's uh, nearing the end of his life um, in uh, Michigan, and so they're out of town this weekend, so we will be uh, in prayer for them, and they would love your prayers as well, but we are privileged to have Ben Bay, one of our new elders, who's going to be preaching um, as we continue our series through Colossians, and so I'm going to invite Ben up. I'd love to say a little prayer over him as he uh, brings the word of God to us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my brother Ben. It's been such a joy to get to know him over the years uh, that, that uh, we've shared together here. Um, I just love his family and, and uh, his heart for you. I thank you that you have called him to serve on the elder 
board for a season here at Maranatha and that you've given him the opportunity this morning to preach the word. And I know that he loves your word. He delights in studying it and discipling others. And so I just pray that by your spirit, you would speak through him exactly what we all need to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you hear me? All right, this morning we are going to be continuing in actually the book of Philippians, even though Tony said Colossians. <laughs> One of those mornings. So we're going to be uh, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10 through 14 this morning, continuing from what Pastor Cody was teaching last week uh, in Philippians 1 through 9. Um, so we'll read that together. If you want to flip with me to uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 10 and go through 14. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now this, in order to understand this section of scripture, we need to have a little bit of context. So we got to tie back into what Cody was teaching last week in Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 9. In 1 through 6, we see that Paul had confidence in the flesh, or at least he established the idea that in order to be right with God, he could have claimed that he had all these different accolades, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, he had zeal, he persecuted the church. He did all these things, all these works to, that could have been said to prove his righteousness, that he's right with God. But he realized that none of that essentially mattered. That in order to truly find righteousness, to truly be right with God, he needed to lose everything that he had perceived value in. So he says, I suffered the loss of all things, of what I perceived to have value in, that I might gain the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And in verses, verse 10, we see that there are three statements. And Paul kind of utilizes verse 10 as a conclusive summary of what he has just talked about in verses 7 through 9. The power of Christ's resurrection, the fellowship of Christ's suffering, and the conformity to his death. These things are, or have the end result, the purpose that we have the ability to have the resurrection from the dead. Now, when Cody was talking about this last week, he said that the greatest mistake that we can make is to think that we have the ability to save ourselves. That there's something that we can do to make us right with God. And Paul believed that for a long time. He knew the law. He knew God's word really, really well. Better than probably anybody here in this room. Yet he came to realize that that wasn't enough. That nothing that he did got him to heaven. So he made a decided choice to place his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ and obtain the righteousness that only comes by faith in Jesus and he calls us to do the same thing. That's what Paul's whole ministry was about, right? Was sharing the love of Jesus Christ, what Christ did on the cross for us. And as we look at verse 10 here, that I may know him 
power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. The idea is that we know Christ in certain ways. There are two primary aspects of knowing Christ that I want to cover today. The first is salvation. We can know Christ in salvation. The second is sanctification. We can know Christ in sanctification. And we'll talk more about both of those in a minute. But what does it mean to truly know Jesus? First, we'll start out with what it's not. Knowing Jesus is not simply knowing about him. Think about it like a neighbor relationship. We all live in different communities, whether you're in a rural area or in a uh, urban area. You have people who are in your neighborhood. You might know their name, you might have seen them, you know maybe who they're married to, how many kids they have, the house they live in, the car they drive. You know things about them, but you don't know them. You don't know their character, you don't know how they respond when certain things happen, you don't know how they interact with their wife or their kids. You don't know how they talk with their coworkers, how they work at their job. You don't actually know that person. So knowing Christ is not simply knowing about him. Knowing Christ is also not doing what he says, which Paul was a great example of that prior to his conversion. He did what the law said. He knew the commandment of God, and he did it. He did it faithfully, but he didn't know Jesus. So knowing Jesus is not doing what he says. Knowing Jesus is not a shallow or partial commitment to an obscure idea of Jesus or hope for eternity. I fear that far too often people come to this idea that, that we, can, we can have both the benefits of knowing Jesus and the world. We can make a partial commitment to Christ but not give up the things that we long for, the things that we want, the things that we think actually make us right with God. You can't partially commit to Jesus. So to know Jesus is not simply to know about him. You can't just believe that there is a God. It's not to just do what he says. You can't just obey the law in hopes of eternity. And it's also not a shallow or partial commitment to some idea that you've made in your own mind of who Jesus is. So what is it? To know Jesus instead is actually a deep devotion to him. It's a total surrender to the reality that he is Lord. The willingness to lay aside all things that we perceive to have value like Paul did. When he said, I set aside or I'm going to suffer the loss of everything that had perceived value. Everything that I thought was making me right with God I'm willing to set that aside, leave the world behind to know Jesus. So it's a deep devotion. To know Jesus is an intimate and personal relationship. So unlike a neighbor-style relationship where you know about the person, it's more like a marriage relationship. And we see this throughout Scripture, right? When Jesus is talking about his relationship to us, oftentimes we're considered the bride, So the marriage relationship is really the one that we should emulate in an idea of knowing Jesus. In our our marriage, right, we have the ability to learn things about them. A good marriage is one in which you put effort into knowing what they like, why they like it, what they want to do in their future, in their life, 
You try to help understand what their purpose is. Try to make them a valuable uh, person. Give them purpose in life. And you try to do that alongside of them. You know things about them. You know their character. You know how they respond to your children. You know how they respond to different circumstances, whether it be suffering or difficulty or uh, when they're happy, you know what they're going to do. You know the things they like and they dislike. In other words, there's a, a depth of relationship and intimacy and a personal commitment to understanding who Jesus is if we're truly to know him. To know Jesus is also intended to be deep and fulfilling. In other words, it's supposed to create in us a desire for heaven. Not just for getting out of the consequences of hell, right? Because we can have that shallow uh, desire to just like, I want to be free from the consequences of my sin. I want heaven so that I can evade hell. But you don't just get heaven to evade hell. We're intended to desire heaven because we will be with our Savior for eternity. We have a desire for the person of Jesus Christ, not just the benefits that we get from that relationship. So to know Jesus is both, there is a deep devotion to him, the willingness to set aside what we thought brought us closer to, uh, or what what we thought gave us eternity in heaven setting aside worldly things. It's a deep and intimate relationship. It is also meant to create a longing to be with him in heaven. To further illustrate this, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 7. And we're just going to read a small part of this. Um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, if you'd like to follow along. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We see two schools of thinking here. We see one which is, which is wrong, but honestly, if we were to be uh, upfront with ourselves, we would see that more often than not, that's the one that we buy into. We think that we can be morally good by our perception of what morally good is. We think we can obey the, the commandments in Scripture that we understand, and we can have eternal life. In other words, we think that at our core, we are good people who, if we do good enough works, will gain eternity. But that's not right thinking. He says, Jesus says, those of you who do this, who just perform the righteous acts, the righteous rituals to try to gain my favor, I will tell you that I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Instead, he says, right thinking is to know Jesus. The will of the Father is that we know Jesus. Part of this is realizing our position. And we're going to touch more on this at at the end here, but the reality is that we are not inherently good people who periodically do bad things. We are inherently sinful people 
who by God's grace don't do as bad of things as we could. In that, we need to realize that we are down here and God is way up there. We're, like, it's not like close. Like if I do just enough right, I'll be able to attain to a level of perfection that, that makes me meet with Jesus, where, where he'll be okay with me and accept me into heaven. The, the gap is vast. We're not able to meet that. The only way, as Paul says, is to lay aside what we perceive to have value to take on the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So to know Christ in salvation. In Philippians 3, 7, just to bounce back to that real quick. In verse 10 and 11, it says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We're gonna look at Romans 6 to kind of uh, connect this. Now, uh, you know, there have been slogans and stuff like that. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection, they avoid the fellowship of his suffering and uh, the conformity to his death. But th- what I want to uh, show you today, and Paul expounds on this in Romans 6, that these things really work together. It's not like there's the power of his resurrection and then over there's the fellowship of his suffering and over there's the conformity to his death. All three things are really connected and they work together uh, for God's purpose. In Romans 6, chapter three, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, starting there through verse 11. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. That is the conformity to his death, right? We can take on some of this aspect of what Christ did on the cross, his death, we're baptized into that, we're identifying with his death on the cross, the conformity to his death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's the power of the resurrection. The reality that Jesus did not just stay dead. Praise the Lord. He did not stay dead. He resurrected. And because of his resurrection, when we are baptized into his death, we have the ability also to be raised up with him, to have a newness of life. There's a transformation that occurs. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So speaking specifically of the conformity to his death, there's a a significant thing that occurs with this. When we realize that we are being conformed to his death, we're realizing that we are now separated from our sin. In other words, we are no longer entrapped or enslaved by sin. We take on a new master. The resurrection power enables us to now live a, cl- live a life glorifying to Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death, is no longer, it's, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we we see in this passage that the conformity to Jesus' death really is affected by the power of the resurrection, right? 
we have the ability because of um, our unity in, in Christ's work to set aside or be separated from the power of sin and death, to live and have uh, hope in the resurrection to eternal life. So the power of the resurrection is essentially our hope, right? That's where we derive our hope from. This life isn't it. It's not like we're gonna die and then we're gonna cease to exist. God is saying there's a heaven, there's an eternity for you. For those of you who have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you have an eternal hope of glory in which you will receive a resurrected body. You will be with Christ for all of eternity. That's our hope. Also, while here on earth, this transaction gives us the ability to be separated from the enslavement to sin. When you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, when you don't have that relationship with him, you can't help but sin. That's your very nature. You want to sin. You desire sin. We all do it prior to salvation. Scripture is very clear on that. But because of being conformed to his death, we have the ability to set that aside and say, no, God now is my master. So now to Christ in sanctification. Paul kind of is tying this up in Philippians chapter three there, right back to verse 10 and 11. He's, he's tying up the concept from 3.1 through 3.9 that we need salvation and that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. And now he talks about sanctification, right? What do we do with this salvation? Well, the gospel isn't the end of the road. It's not like you get saved and then you go on living your life however you want. Instead, he continues on. In verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's concluding this idea of salvation and then he's saying, okay, now let's take the gospel and how this applies to our life. And we're gonna look a little bit more at the fellowship of his suffering now. Because as believers, we are called to live differently. We're called to suffer differently than the world. And Paul acknowledges, right, right out the box, like, I am not perfect. Salvation didn't give me immediate perfection in which, okay, now I am just good. Now I have to, to work out this salvation aspect. What does that mean? And he says, I'm gonna press on toward what I was laid hold of. And that, that pressing on is the process of sanctification. And for those of you who might not know what sanctification is, if you've never heard that word, sanctification is simply the process by which we become like Christ. It's conformity to Christ. But the gospel continues to have impact in our lives post-salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're just going to hit verse 15 and then jump down to verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 2, 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. 
We see the contrast there, right? Sometimes we do things, we sin, and rightly we are punished or we have consequences for it. We deserve those. But the context here is that when you do what is right, when you are obedient to the word, when you love people well and you are still trampled underfoot, you still suffer, you still have pain, then what? How do we live? Then we talk about, or Paul talks about Christ's example. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he reviled not. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. The will of God, this has been a, a much debated topic, and honestly, I've struggled with it off and on in my life. But oftentimes, what we want to know when we first think of the will of God is what career should I have? Where should I live? Who should I marry? What ministry should I serve in? And God doesn't really talk about those things directly. Instead, what he talks about is his will being our salvation. He wants mankind to know that he loves them, that he died for him so that we can have eternal life. So his will is for our salvation. His will is also for our sanctification, that after salvation, we have the ability to become and grow more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So everything that's talked about in Scripture after salvation is about how we become like Christ and how we, through that, are a testimony to the watching world. Right here, the will of God is that by doing right, in other words, living in a way that conforms to the image of Christ, that you might silence foolish men or your testimony might cause them to realize that what they're doing, the way they're living, isn't right. That they also need a Savior. He goes on to share the example of Christ's suffering, right? That, that while suffering, Christ did not sin. While suffering, he was not deceitful to get out of the suffering. While being reviled, ridiculed, scorned, beaten, he did not do the same in return. Under this duress, the suffering that he had, he didn't usher out threats. He wasn't like, well, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to smite you. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And he had the power to do so. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one true God. He knew that uh, the statement, right, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, what he calls us to is to love people. He said when he was on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The reality is for, for us, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. We are not better than anyone else. It doesn't matter where they come from, what they've done. And God through Jesus, set us that example that even when we suffer at the hands of other people, sinful just like us, maybe they're sinning in ways that you think you would never do, but we are called to love them and still trust that God is the one who seeks vengeance. And for us, our responsibility is to seek restoration and to suffer well. Jesus' ultimate sacrifice was one of love to the undeserving. When he died on the cross, it wasn't for people who deserved salvation, right? It wasn't because they were doing so many right things that they deserved what he was doing for them on the cross. No, that wasn't the case at all, right? 
It was for those of us who are against God, who are separated from him, who don't want anything to do with him, who didn't want anything to do with him. That's who he died for, and that's our example. So if you're here this morning, and maybe this is the first time you've actually heard that message. We have new people come in all the time, right? So I don't want to assume that everybody knows the message of salvation, the gospel. I don't want to assume that everyone here is a believer and committed to Christ. So I want to say this one more time. From Cody's message, he said, the greatest mistake that we can make is to think that we can save ourselves. Because we cannot. There's no work or achievement that you can have. There's no moral living that gets you right with God. Instead, salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. But what that means, there's a couple things that you need to understand with that. First, you need to know that you need a Savior, which means you need to know and realize that you are a sinner. In Romans chapter 5, it says that we are enemies of God. It says that we have inherited Adam's sin. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are children of wrath by nature. In Psalms 51, it says that we were conceived in iniquity. In other words, at our conception, we were already sinful. We are sinners in need of a Savior. That sin doesn't just do a little thing. It separates us wildly from God. All of these right works that we try to do to get right with God, it's like any one of us, right? We line up on the Grand Canyon and we run and try to jump through that. Some of us will jump a little further than others. But we're all going to die. That's the end of all mankind without Christ. We need something else to bridge the gap. We need a plane or a bridge or something. Well, that is found in Jesus Christ. So we need to understand that we are a sinner. We need to understand that Jesus is that Savior. He died on the cross for our sin. He took our wrath, our punishment, what we deserved rightly because of our sin nature. He took that on himself, paid that penalty so that we don't have to. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Now, if you were here during Easter, Tony and his family gave an excellent message on the proofs of the resurrection. It's not just a fable, it's not a fairy tale, it's not some false thing that we try to cling to. It's a reality. There are many proofs that we can look at and say, yeah, Jesus did actually rise from the dead. The resurrection is a real thing. And Paul in in 1 Corinthians 15 says that uh, if, if the resurrection didn't occur, we are most to be pitied. Because our belief system is false. It's built on a lie. But if Jesus did in fact raise from the dead, which I am confident that he did, then we have the ability to have salvation and a hope of eternity and resurrection one day with Christ. So you need to understand and acknowledge that, right? And, and by faith, which means that we, we trust that these things are true, We ultimately need to surrender our life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, it says that we need to uh, believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, or we need to believe in our heart. uh, Let me just read it. (laughs) I had it prior to this, promise. Um, Romans 10, 9. Yeah, 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
In other words, we need to believe in our heart that Jesus is who he says he is, right? That he raised from the dead. This is a fact. We are entrusting ourselves to that fact. And that confession of Jesus as Lord, what that means is just like Paul did. He said, I turn from what I believed to have value and bring my salvation, and I set that aside, and I'm surrendering my life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is now my master. He is now my God. I set those things aside. So if you're here this morning, you've never heard that message, it is not a complicated thing. It's truly a simple choice to believe what the scripture says about who Jesus is and about who you are and to surrender your life to him. Now if you're here this morning and you do know Jesus as your savior, we are called to live differently. Not just to live differently, but to suffer differently. As God's children, we are image bearers. In other words, he has not created idols of himself, right? If we look at Exodus and Deuteronomy and the Ten Commandments, he says, do not make an idol for myself. What is the interesting thing about all pagan religions? They make idols that look like men. I find that to be a fascinating thing because our desire is that we see God in our image. But what God did is he didn't create little idols of himself that we could look to and worship. Instead, what he did is he created mankind. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to be an image bearer of the living God. You are the statue that people look to and see the reflection of Jesus. Or are you? I want you to think with me for a second about this. If we're truly being honest with ourselves, does our life and our conduct actually reflect one surrendered to Christ? If we could put on the big screen right here, like if we could have your life running real time, streamed, which is probably doable today. If we could stream it on there and we could watch what you do in your home, in your vehicle, at your workplace, when you're out with your friends doing your hobbies, what would we see? How would we see you interact with your spouse, your children, your coworkers? What would your work ethic look like? How do you use your time? What's your life look like on social media? What do you view on TV? What are you watching on YouTube? Would your life truly reflect one devoted to Jesus Christ? Would we look at that and say, man, I would like to be like that person as they follow Christ? Or would we be embarrassed for you? I think it's okay that we actually do some introspection and truly look at our lives. Do we reflect God as we are called to do? But the reality is, God is omnipresent. What that means is he is everywhere all the time. So you are on the big screen before the holy judge of the world. Your life is on full display. But it's not just your actions that he sees. He sees your thoughts. He sees the intent of your heart. So this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and, and maybe that's been convicting to you, 
I want to encourage you that God calls you to repentance. God calls you to seek forgiveness. Maybe that's from your family. Maybe that's just from God. Maybe that's from coworkers. But God calls you to something else. He calls you to live well and to suffer rightly because we were called to show the world the hope that is found in the power of the resurrection, the hope of eternal glory with Christ, to show love and compassion to the undeserving, to suffer unjustly and respond rightly in spite of that, to use our time well because our time is short here on earth. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for just the gift of, of having it. The fact that we aren't just uh, basing our life, our conduct on fairy tales, but on the fact that you are a loving and forgiving God. I thank you, God, that you desire to have us as your children, that you have made a way for us to bridge the gap to be right with you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me or no one comes to the Father but through me. It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are healed, that we are forgiven, that we are made right with you. May we set aside and suffer the loss of all worldly things that we might bring glory and honor to your name through salvation and then sanctification. In your name, Jesus, amen. Please stand, worship with us. All right, in closing here, I'm going to read two passages. The first of which, for those who may have not ever seriously considered a relationship with Christ, from 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. I urge you, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have not surrendered to his Lordship, do so today. Don't waste. It is by God's grace that you are even alive today, that you are here hearing the message. Now is the acceptable time for salvation. Today is the day. And for those of you who know Christ, Philippians 1.27 only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are the image bearers of the living God. And as we leave here, it's easy to jump back into the world and be like, I'm just gonna do what I want to do. But I would encourage you, you are on the big screen of God's eye. He sees everything you do. He hears everything you say. He knows what's in your heart. And if this morning was convicting to you in your lifestyle what you have been doing, I want to encourage you to truly repent and seek God's forgiveness. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, confess, um, confess your sins before the Lord. Let me just read it again. Wow. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, we, after salvation, have the ability to kind of clean the slate, right? Confess your sin before the Lord. Repent, turn from that, and he is faithful to forgive you. Wipes your slate clean and we start afresh. We have a new life in Christ. Let's live that. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I just thank you once again for your word and for um, the reality that it transforms our life. That you have given us the opportunity to bring glory to your name, to be a representative for you, an ambassador for you here on this earth. Our life after salvation isn't the end. You've given us work to do, and I thank you for that purpose. I thank you, God, that you've also made a way for us to be right with you and to have an eternity secured in heaven, that we can be free from the consequences of our sin, the eternal damnation that we rightly deserve by faith in Christ. Help us, Lord, as we leave here today to to think through these things, to wrestle with them, because life is not easy without you, It seems chaotic, but you've given us a way to understand it, and you'll walk through it with us. In your name, Jesus, amen.